0: Turn with me again this morning to our study in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. As we turn there, um, not related to the sermon necessarily, but just want to say I'm thankful for each one who's here this morning, Um, learning more often that none of us know when this Sunday will be our last Sunday. None of us will know when this breath will be our last breath. And so each time I come into this this sanctuary to come worship with you, to come alongside all of you, I'm thankful because you're brothers and sisters who I'll be spending eternity with. And so I pray that we don't take that for granted. I took it for granted for too long. And so I'm just thankful for each one who's here. This morning. Going back to our study of Mark, um, there is going to be two things that I am pulling through this morning. One is going to be the thread of the faith of mankind. So, what does faith look like for us, both positively and negatively? And then, secondly, what does the power of God look like? Just how much understanding do we have of it? How much do we ponder it? How much do we live that out in our own lives, understanding his power? And so those two things we're going to bring through this, this morning with a couple of examples from, from both. But with that, Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Let's read. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned and in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that had happened to her, Came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some, tr- some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble a teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Once again, <clears throat> as Jesus is making his way to the land, what awaits him but a giant crowd? I know we've stated this before, but could you imagine being exhausted from travel, being exhausted from work, and possibly you're on your way home from work or you're, you're on your way to your next destination, and what uh, awaits you but a large crowd waiting for your attention You come inside tired, you come back just wanting to to rest, and what awaits but your next venture, but your next uh, conversation, but your next goal that's in mind. That's Jesus again and again. For any one of us, it would be quite demoralizing to open that door. We would take a pause and possibly say, okay, I need to pray and and go forward because I I don't want to do this right now. But for Jesus... Jesus was sent for the lost. And so he just treks forward. And as he is going forward, one of the rulers of the synagogue came to him. <clears throat> Jairus was his name. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. Now, thus far in Mark, those who are in religious authorities have shown nothing but dismay or animosity towards Jesus. We haven't had many rulers. Come forward, imploring, falling at the feet of Jesus. No, in fact, it's quite different. Just a chapter ago in verse 22, the scribes say, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. It doesn't sound like a very nice endorsement for Jesus. It doesn't sound like the reverence that we see from Jairus right now. Before that, in chapter 3, verse 6, as Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, we are told the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Two occasions already that they are not too pleased with Jesus or his ministry. Before then, they questioned Jesus' fellowship, his works, and more healings. And it seems like all that's been presented to us thus far in Mark has not been a a positive relationship between Jesus and the rulers of the synagogues, whether that be scribes or Pharisees or whoever that may be. There's not a, a nice relationship that's going on here. And so to see one who is a ruler of the synagogue, as we're told here, to not only come forward to Jesus, imploring him, but also falling at his feet would be quite a weird sight to see already in Mark. And more than to come to him, more than to fall at his feet, again, we're told that he implores him, and it says earnestly. He's coming forward earnestly. No malice, no bad words to say. He's imploring of Jesus. Stark difference from previous religious authorities. So why is Jairus doing this? Well, we're told that he has a little daughter, and this little daughter is on the point of death. Ah, Here's the reason why Jairus comes forward. Jairus' little daughter is extremely ill, so much so that she's to the point of death. Right? This isn't just a fever. This isn't just an, an illness that has overcome her. No, this is an illness that is leading her towards death. Now having a little one now, and I'm sure I'm speaking for the parents in here, to imagine a little one being to the point of death. Any one of our, our children being to the point of death them struggling, them fighting to, to stay alive. Each breath is hard. Each moment that they, they cry is an agony to our ears. It would be a hard position to be where Jairus is. And so you can imagine all the treatments that are falling short, all the treatments that aren't working. Any one of us in this room would be brought to our knees we would feel altogether helpless in our own strength, in our own capabilities, and what we can do for our child. As believers, those who are children of God, where else would we go but to the feet of Jesus? If our son, our daughter, was sick, ill, our days would be spent kneeling before the cross. imploring, as Jairus did, to heal our little one. And yet what I want us to see here, because we can understand that as believers, falling towards the feet of Jesus, I want you to see here something beautiful that he does, Jairus, and something that we can emulate. It's the confidence that he has, That Jesus can, in fact, make one well again. It's not just coming forward saying, I hope you can do this. It's not just coming forward saying, well, maybe this will happen. Jairus is coming forward with a confidence. He says, Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. It doesn't say, and maybe she will be made well and live. Possibly she will be made well and live. No, so that she may be well and live. In Matthew's gospel, we are told by the writer that even as Jairus is is hearing the news of his daughter's death, his daughter has died. The news has just came in and he's talking with Jesus. He replies to Jesus, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. There is no doubt in this man the miracles that Jesus could accomplish, the power that Jesus held. He had no doubt. Remember, he's a part of the rulers of the synagogue and he would know very well of the miraculous things that Jesus has accomplished. He would know very well of the stories and and all that has happened throughout Jesus' ministry so far. And so, as he comes forward imploring, saying, You can do this, there is faith that is there falling at his feet, but there's also an acknowledgement of the power that Jesus holds. He says, I know you can do this. So I implore you earnestly come lay your hands on her. And what was Jesus' response? He goes, this is what he's here to do, to come for the sick, to come for the lost. And so Jesus went with him. And as he goes forward, as they're making their, their way to the home of Jairus, we hear that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. It's interesting to see that Jesus does not shriek away from the people to whom he was sent. If everywhere I was going, a crowd was following me, I'd want to be on the outskirts of town, not being just huddled in and not having a a sense to breathe. And yet Jesus is in the midst of them. Despite the crowd gathered around him as he walks, he continues to walk forward with the people, with those who are lost. And so you can imagine it would be hard for Jesus to distinguish any one person from another in this crowd. It would just look like a sea of faces, and it's, you kind of have a little bit distinguishing factors, but altogether, the crowd itself is so large, it's so great, that it's going to be hard to, to pick someone out. And as the crowd had begun to follow Jesus, we're told there's a woman who had an illness. We're told that she had, a discharge, she had discharged blood for 12 years, and she had suffered much under many physicians. All that she had spent was gone, and there was no improvement. In fact, she grew far worse. It is not told exactly what disease the woman had, but we do know it was serious. The fact that she was discharging blood, we can logically assume that it was possibly some sort of tumor or infection or virus that was overtaking her body. right? Something on the inside that was causing this to happen. It was so bad that she would go to visit the doctors and physicians, spending all that she had trying to improve her health, and there was not a thing that any one of them could do for her. Each time as she tried a new doctor, a new physician, a new way to try to heal her body, there was not a thing that any one of them could have done. For 12 years, she did not heal. For 12 years, she did not get better. She was essentially a walking time bomb until the moment in which she passed. Each morning she weakened, each morning she grew more ill, and it was just a matter of time before this sickness overcame her. You could imagine that she was in a state of hopelessness, a state of despair, a state of grief. Not only was she getting worse, but there was no earthly cure for her state. It's one thing to get worse, but there is hope. It's another thing to get worse, and there is no hope. There is no light. There is nothing to look forward to. If you want to make it worse for her, if we remember the sermon that was spoken on in weeks past of the leper, and how the leper was unclean, well, guess what? So was this woman ceremonially unclean. And just as a leper was cast out due to the law, so this woman would have been cast out due to the law. In Leviticus, there was the laws about bodily discharge, and one of them is what we hear here in Mark. In Leviticus fifteen twenty-five to 27, it states, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanliness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, she shall be to her as a bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as is the uncleanliness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. So until the day that the woman is clean again. She's an outcast for all around because guess what? She's going to make them unclean as well. So again, not only does she have this illness, not only is she getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and there is no hope, she's also outcast from society because she's unclean we cannot have you be here in this vicinity. So this morning I want us to try to understand this state. Imagine yourself being, beginning to feel your body betray you. And different in the matter than us just decaying over time as we do because we're fleshly sinful creatures and eventually this body will decay. But imagine that that decaying is rapidly increasing. That there's something going on with you, some kind of disease, some kind of tumor or cancer, whatever the case may be, that is rapidly improving this decay. And you go to the doctors with the little resources that you have, and you go forward trying to to battle this disease, you go forward trying to overcome this disease, and each doctor you go to says, there's nothing we can do for you. Each doctor you go to says, actually, your state is worsening. And I'm sorry, there's, there's nothing that we're in our capability that we can do. And so you go try doctor after doctor after doctor, you try medicines, you try different practices, you go all around with the resources that you have, spending all to see what you can do for yourself, and there's nothing And you find after time that this ailment is not only healing but getting worse. You're finding yourself getting weaker. You're finding getting up in the morning harder. You're finding walking around being more painful. Breathing, hurting. Coughing feels like a a bullet wound through your heart. And as the news continues to grimmer, all you want to do is be with your family. All you want to do is come alongside someone that you love and, and say, there's nothing. I can't do anything. And you go, and you try to enter the house, and you're barred from entering. In fact, a law is put in place That you cannot go and see anyone because you'll make them unclean. So you're sick, you're hopeless, you're lonely, there's no hope. Six months, maybe a year, two years, we we feel this. This was applied to this woman for 12 years. Twelve years, this woman was an outcast and overtaken by this ailment. I tried to walk us through just to give us a picture of what this is, but none of us will understand what this is. It's too hard to comprehend. It's too hard to understand for 12 years going through an ailment, being an outcast alone by yourself because you can't be near anyone. It's a miserable state. And so that's where this woman's at. And then she sees this great crowd approaching. And some way, somehow, she recognizes that Jesus is in that crowd. She had heard reports or whispers, possibly, about who Jesus was and exactly what he could do, the miracles that he has accomplished. And the woman, hopeless and hurting, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And what are we told from the scriptures? It says, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed for her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The woman is healed after 12 years. This one for 12 years who no doctor could restore to good health. This one who had no hope and her state was grave. One touch of Jesus' garments, and she's made well. Any one of us in this room hearing that would praise the Lord for what he has done. If someone's sick for two months, for two weeks, we praise the Lord as we should of his goodness. For 12 years, she was an illness, and by one touch of Jesus' garment, she's healed. And how amazing a picture that is for her. I can imagine as she feels herself restored, as she feels herself healed again, and energy put back into her body. And she understands, I feel much differently than I just did two seconds ago. There's a lot to unpack here in these verses, but I wanted us to read it first just to see the picture that took place, to see the joy that comes from Jesus. To see the joy that comes from being one who is having an ailment, who has some kind of hurt, and yet by one touch of Jesus healed, restored. So to see the full scope of the power the mercy and grace of our God. Let's jump into the instance of Jesus' power in these two healings. Mark tells us all the ailments this woman had, right the incurable nature of her disease, the disease that plagued her for 12 years, the disease that no doctor could could diagnose or maybe they could diagnose, but they couldn't solve it. It was a death sentence, was this disease that this woman had. And yet, 12 years, a disease that plagued her, one touch, the blood that was flowing, dried up. No more blood, no more disease healed. And I want us to see is what power is this that the disease that is marked as death sentence is cured instantly. I want to start by erasing the narrative of what we understand of power in society, right We look at movies and, and TV shows and I fall prey to it because I love it right I, I love seeing power displayed and strength displayed in TVs and movies and it's fun to watch and it's usually uh, magnificent and it's usually a big um, display of of, of grandiose you know, pops in the sky, or strength, or whatever the case may be, or flying, and we see the power, and we see, wow, this person is really, really strong, or this person is really, really powerful, and our minds do a, a decent job of trying to display that into movies and TV. But this power that, that Jesus has, that God has, is not like movies and TV, so, so if anyone is thinking it's like that this morning, please don't. Each one of them, although powerful in movies and and TV, they exert energy and over time it fades. Over time they get tired. Over time, for some reason, they cannot be as powerful as they once were. And their powers are are released in some kind of thing and the audience ooze and ahs over what they can do. And the bigger the spectacle or feat they pull off, the more powerful they are. But here here there's no great display that we would see in movies or TV God displayed incredible awesome power but it's not like what we're used to seeing by a garment a mere touch of a garment one is healed There was not God in the background raising up his hands to do so. There was not Jesus turning around and and touching her and healing her. By the touch of Jesus' garment and her faith, she was healed. This is who God is. God is omnipotent. There are no limits to his power. There is no such thing that is difficult for God to accomplish. It is by his nature that he is all-powerful. It is his nature. Just as easy as it is for our heart to beat or for our eyes to blink, our nature, as easy as it is for God to be powerful, to be mighty, to be strong. In fact, it's far easier for God because he's perfect in his nature and we're still flawed. Easier than our heart being in our chest is it for God to be powerful. And so what are some feats of how powerful God is? I'm sure we've spoken about these before, but I'm going to say them again. Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. It says, And what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. So what is this? God is able to raise from the dead and put into authority whom he wishes. Jeremiah thirty two seventeen Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God has made the heavens and the earth by his outstretched arms without it being difficult. Luke eleven twenty. 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God can cast out demons with the finger. Lastly, turn with me to what was read to us this morning in Isaiah 40. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the last six verses, 25 to 31. But turn with me to Isaiah 40. There's many other places you could go to. I was going to bring up Job, but I talk about Job too much. So I thought, New One Isaiah 40 is a good place to go to see the way in which God displays his power. And so Isaiah 40, 25 to 31 says this. This is God. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these? He who brings you out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my rights is disregarded by my God. Have you not known and have you not heard They shall walk and not faint. This is who God is. God's power is beyond our comprehension. There is no visual media nor literature that we read that can compare to the power of God. The Lord himself says in this Isaiah passage, to whom then will you compare to me? That I should be like him. Who is there that you can think of that is like me, says the Holy One? There is not one who is like me. There is not one who stands like I stand. There is not one who has an outstretched arm like I have. There is not one who can create the heavens and the earth like I can. There is not one who can give strength like I can. There is not one who can tame like I can. I see the Lord often ask questions to those around to make them ponder more and to question. It's one thing to understand God is powerful. It's another thing to ask yourself, how powerful is God? To ask yourself, what are the ways in which God is powerful? To dig in, to dive in, to have to ask the hard questions. Who is like God? Why am I spending so long on the power of God? Because this is a part of his nature. As we see here in this passage, it is part of his nature, his power. And to understand God, you must understand his power the best that we can. We're still going to fail and not be able to comprehend fully the power of God, but we need to understand it in some capacity, at least the capacity that he's shown us in his scriptures. And so to understand back here the woman in Mark, she understood the power of God. She believed in what she had heard of Jesus and the things that he could do. She understood that God's power enough that in Matthew's gospel we are told that she believes if, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. God is powerful enough that just getting close enough to something that Jesus is wearing, God can make one healed. That is how powerful our God is. And this is the case where power meets faith, which is where we transition from our talk about God's power to this woman's faith. This woman had a faith that God could accomplish what seemed to be an impossible task. Right. This 12 year illness that can't be, can't be healed. This woman had faith that God could accomplish this in her unclean state with no way to escape from the troubles of her ailments. She believed the power of God through Jesus could triumph. Seemed like her mindset was the mindset that we hear Jesus speak in the later chapters of Mark saying, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. She believed that Jesus could heal her. There was no doubt. You know that her faith was genuine Because as Jesus turns and asks, who touched me? She didn't shriek to the back. She didn't hide. She knew exactly of God's power in this moment. And she came forward knowing what had happened and shared it all with Jesus. In fear and trembling before Jesus, she falls down as Jairus had fallen down at the feet This miracle had invoked a response from this woman of reverence towards Jesus. She understood exactly whose presence she was in and did not try to hide in the back. She acknowledged Jesus for who he was. Now, if you were one in the crowd and witnessed this woman who I'm sure in some capacity you're familiar with, you may not have a good relationship with her, but you know that she is an outcast, you know that she's on the outskirts of town, and you saw her come into the crowd, one, you would be a little weary, because if she touches you, you're unclean. But two, you just witness this great teacher, who you admire in some capacity, whether it be for his miracles or his teachings, she comes up and touches him. You can imagine the shock. Did that really happen? Did she really just make him unclean? Did she really just come in unannounced, touching his garments? She just broke all the laws, defiled this man. How and why would she do such a thing? And you can imagine even possibly being an outrage from the crowd, whether it be justified or not. However, none of that is true with Jesus. As Jesus hears the woman's testimony of what happened, as Jesus sees her heart and her posture towards himself at that moment, it's not met with anger, it's not met with wrath, it's not met with malice. Now Jesus says in response, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In the Greek, the phrase has made you well can be translated to made you whole. You have been made whole. Go. This woman's response of genuine faith can elicit that this was possibly not more, even more than a physical healing, but possibly also a spiritual healing. Her understanding of of who Jesus is at this moment, her submission to him at that moment, falling at his feet, acknowledging him for who he is, you can imagine that there's possibly even more than a physical, but a spiritual healing. For Jesus to say, "Go away, you have been made whole." Jesus gave a response that was far different than the crowd. And yet this is who our God is. Our strength, our clean state, our ability to move forward in a right direction comes from one thing, not ourselves. It's a faith in who God is, an acknowledgement of his holiness, his righteousness, his stature. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our faith comes from. Understanding that he is deserving of all praise. It's why we're here on a Sunday morning, I would hope, is to praise our Lord for what he's done in our lives. This isn't a social club. This is a coming forward to praise our Lord. And I stand up here this morning and as God questioned in Isaiah, I asked some questions to you this morning. Do you have this faith in God? Do you have a faith that God can accomplish any task or feat that is put in front of you? Or when you are in the midst of trial? Or you are in the midst of anguish. Do you shriek back? Does your faith falter? Do you seemingly lose hope and think that this trial is too large for, for God to undertake? Do you tremble and lose all hope? When you are hurting from ailments, you throw up your hands saying, well, it's over. Nothing I can do. Nothing that can be done. I know God can do a lot of things, but he can't do this. Have you ever said that? I know that God says, if you pray and you say, move a mountain and and you earnestly come forward to the Lord and you ask it, then it will be done. But I don't see mountains moving How many of you believe, like this woman believed this morning, that even if I touch his garment, I know that he can make me well? When you pray to God, do you do so because that's what you're told to do? You're told Sunday by Sunday by the the preacher in the pulpit that what is good to do is to to pray, to be in your word, to to go and do these things, and you say, well, that's what I got to do. Then, do you do it to check all your bases to say, okay, got that one done, I got that one done, I got that one done? I would challenge all of us. In the church this morning to examine your own walk in faith to see if you have this confidence. Not a confidence in yourself or a confidence in how great your faith is, but rather a confidence in even your little faith in a big God. A mighty, powerful, loving, caring, perfect God. Jairus and this woman have shown a faith in the midst of trials that seem like cannot be overcome. A little daughter who is on the verge of death, dying, and a woman who has been plagued with an ailment for 12 years. Both have seemed hopeless, and yet they did not seem hopeless. Have faith this morning of the statement that is told to us in Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Know that to be true this morning. Don't let another day go by where you don't know that to be true, where you are not content in the Lord. Where you're not content in just saying, I know of God, but I do not know God without wrestling as Jacob wrestled in Genesis so that God may be your God, not your father's God, not your mother's God, not your friend's God, that you may wrestle and he may be your God. There may be no doubt that he's your God. So we witness what it is to have faith in God Let's now see what it's like to not have faith in God. We go forward in the next verses. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. As Jesus had just finished speaking to the woman, Some from Jairus' house had come near to Jairus saying, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's over. She's gone. There's nothing more that the teacher can do. There's no reason to keep bothering him. It's over. From what it looks like, they were unable to get to Jairus' daughter in time. Just short. Just didn't make it. Whatever sickness she had had overtaken her at that moment and she was pronounced dead by those in the house. Now what could have been Jairus' reaction? What is What it? I would do is sorrow begin to set in, right? Grief for the one that you just lost, this one that you care about, this one whom you love. We do not know exactly what he was feeling, but we do know that Whatever fears were stirring up within him, Jesus overhears the news and draws near to Jairus, stating, Do not fear, only believe. There's no need to fear, Jairus. I heard what was just told to you. I heard what has been spoken to you. Don't fear. This is not the time to fear. Just believe. And so just as Jairus had come near to Jesus in the beginning of this chapter, imploring and falling at his feet, there was a belief that Jesus could heal his daughter. But now, what is there to heal? She has passed. What is there to do? She is gone. Yet here is Jesus saying, do not fear. You can imagine the confusion, but there's no scoffing or mocking from Jairus of this statement, instead, they just go to his house, accompanied by Peter, James, and John. And as they arrive, they are met with commotion: people weeping and wailing loudly. You can imagine that this little girl was loved. You can imagine that this little girl had those around her who, who cherished her. There's weeping loudly outside. We loved her. We missed her already. It's an appropriate response in most circumstances to grieve those who have been lost. And yet here walks the Son of God to the house. And as he enters, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion, weeping and wailing? Why are you doing this? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they proceeded to laugh at him. Here is not an appropriate response. Here is not faith being brought forward. We just spent the last 30 minutes or so diving into the power of God, diving into the faith of Jairus and this woman, and understanding just a facet of who God is, understanding who Jesus is. And as Jesus makes a statement that she is not dead but sleeping, this is not met with understanding or faith. This is met with laughter, with mocking, This one says she is sleeping. This one says she is not actually dead. She is dead. And this teacher thinks that he can do something about it. This teacher thinks that he can raise her. These in the room do not hold the same faith that the woman did just a few moments ago. There is not a feeling that God can accomplish all things. There's not a feeling that God is powerful enough to do whatever he needs to do. Nope, it's met with laughter, laughing at the idea that the girl who had clearly been perceived as dead would be anything other than, than that. And so, more than that, they believe there's not a thing that Jesus can do to overcome it. And this is my challenge again to you this morning. I ask the question, are you like the woman? I ask you again the question, are you like these who laughed at God? Now you may not do it at, at, on such a, a literal level of saying, oh, well, raising from the dead or whatever the case may be. But is there a moment in your life when something's come forward and you doubt? Do you say, I know who God is. Read His Word. I have fellowship with other believers who share with me of who God is. But this thing, I don't know. I don't think this one's possible. And though we don't literally laugh at God, we do laugh at His power, saying it's not great enough. So, what I ask you this one to please examine yourself in this way, also. And understand that one of these ways leads to security, safety, and perseverance. And the other leads to pain, sorrow, ignorance, and lack of assurance. And which one do you want this morning? For I think it to be very apropos that the very next verse, those who are laughing at the statement of Jesus are put outside of the house. They're not left in, those who laughed. They are put out. All that is left is the father, mother, and then Peter, James, and John. And in some senses, this is a picture of God's kingdom for those who do not have faith. They're put outside the house. They have no place nor standing to come into the shelter of the Lord. Only those who have true faith who truly believe the Son of God, what he has done for our sins, for our transgressions, have a place in the house. It's a hard reality, but it's a true reality. Those who do not have faith will not be in the house. But back here in Mark, Jesus goes into where the little girl is taking her by the hand and said to her, "Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Talitha in Aramaic means youth or lamb, the one who is precious and seen as young in the eyes of Jesus. This young one, this lamb, this youth, precious, And by the word of Jesus, this one who had been dead, he took her by the hand, said one word, arise. And immediately this girl got up and began walking. I was thinking (laughs) this morning, actually, of how much it's difficult for me to get up in the morning sometimes. Sometimes wake up at 4 a.m. and try to get out of bed and I'm drowsy and I'm not feeling it and my energy's not up and I'm trying my best to, to walk through and my legs aren't working like they should. Takes me about an hour or so to kind of adjust back to where I was to feel the energy restored within me. This is a girl who had not been walking for who knows how long. This is a girl who had been dead, all energy put away from her body and immediately... She got up and started walking. No hesitation, no warm-up, no energy needing to be restored slowly, but immediately was walking, this one who was dead. That's the power of God on full display here. doesn't need to be a grandiose spectacle of power. It's as easy as a word. That's how easy God's power is. Parents are overcome with amazement, witnessing the power of God on display. Understanding there's only one person who can accomplish these feats, and it's God. And you can imagine the feeling would be overwhelming. You can imagine saying, how can one overcome death? We know later on what he would do. But we see the very next verse, Jesus strictly charges them that no one should know this. No one should know what just happened at this moment. If I witnessed this, I'd want to tell the whole world what I just saw. I just saw one who was dead. Jesus came in, took her by the hand, said arise, and immediately she woke up. It's not only a great story, but it's also just, its you're put in awe of how awesome God is. And you say, I want to share this with everyone. And Jesus strictly charges, saying, don't tell anyone of this. And you would say, why? Why would that be the case? Why, why can no one be known of what just happened? Well, the story at this time, in this place, is not yet finished for Jesus on earth. The story is not finished yet. This was, again, a foreshadowing of things still to come. Jesus would himself be persecuted and crucified, hung to die on a cross for our behalf, buried, and himself triumph over death. Yes, Jesus returns physical life to this little girl, but soon, soon this story would be nothing. Soon this story of the girl would pale in comparison. Soon Jesus would restore spiritual life by his own death and his own resurrection. Oh, what a joy it is that we can be as this little girl was, dead. Not physically, but spiritually, dead. Condemned by our fleshly body, set towards destruction, transgressions and sins nailing us to the cross. And yet God in his loving kindness stretched out his hand, Remove the scales from your eyes, turned our face to himself, and said, arise. Arise from your old self, put on your new self, you are made new, you are mine. Come into my presence, cloaked in the righteousness of my son, and be mine. I've asked myself the question many times, and I'm sure that all of you have, is why me? Why was it me? There's nothing special about me. There's nothing good about me. Why me? Why any one of us sitting in the pew this morning? Why you, David? Why you, Ilona? Why you, Angelica? Why any one of us sitting here this morning? Because he loves you, and you are his. He loves you, and you are his. What is required of us? Have faith and believe. Be as Simon and Andrew in chapter one of the gospel, as Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. No hesitation, no wondering, no pondering. What about the fish? What about my job? Immediately they left. Why? For they're his. His. I would ask you this morning, do not let another second go by where you do not have this faith and trust in the Lord as Simon and Andrew have, as this woman has, as Jairus has. I believe. I have faith. I'm finishing up here, but I want us to, to end with reading chapter 17 of the, the message of John. As you turn with me to John, as we get prepared for the table, if there's any doubt if you are his, if there's any doubt of God or Jesus or what he was sent to do, spend time here in these verses I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you. Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent us, Sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, pray this morning, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are awesome. There is none like you. You are altogether different. You are altogether holy and set apart. And yet, as we read in those verses from your Son, You love us. You sent your Son for us. That we may know you. That we may understand you. That we may hear of your truths. Lord, I pray that we would live a life that is showing that truth. Do not let us shriek back Do not let us not be confident. Even now as we come near to communion, let that be in our minds, Lord, what your Son has done for us, the loving kindness that you have shown us. Why are we yours? Because you love us. So now we are able to be called yours. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness in this way. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.